Lord, above, above all of the rituals and regalia of just doing normal life, and it's a Tuesday, and for some of us, Tuesday just means it's the study day, and we get to be in your word, and this is normal, and it's routine. And we expect to get information, we expect to sing to you, and, and I know that you intend so much more than that. You intend tonight to really minister comfort and hope and challenge to each of us. And Lord, I'm sure that if tonight we give ourselves the time to really be honest with ourselves in this chapter, we will be able to find ourselves in it. I would say comfortably, but perhaps uncomfortably. And I recognize your Holy Spirit has a work ordained for each of us tonight. Not because I'm speaking, not because church is in session, but because we have gathered in your name and we are asking for you to do marvelous work in and among us. And I expect that. I know that's your desire tonight. So please... Revolutionize our hearts. Minister to us now, I pray. Commandeer our focus, Lord. Don't let us nod off or just start staring off into something else when what you really have tonight is to really speak to us. You know the challenges we're going through. You know the things that are before us, Lord, that we would like life to be a little easier and these things are before us. But Lord, these are the very things, Lord, that will allow us to see you at times when we need you the most. And well, every breath we need you the most. Sometimes we just recognize it more. So please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak now. Have your way. We commit this night to you. And ask for you to be glorified in it. May your word burst open and come alive. And may we make claim to it as we should tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. What say tonight is that would any please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be the authority. Chapter 25 starts with this. Then Samuel died. And the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him, buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Verse 2 says, There was a certain man of Ma'on, whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was sharing his sheep, David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. Unless you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I've heard that you have shearers and your shepherds were with us. We did not hurt them, nor were there anything missing for them from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes till we come on a feast day. Sorry, before we come on a feast day, please keep whatever comes to your hand, uh, to your servants, and to your son David. 
So David's young men came and they spoke to Nabal all those words that in the name of David and waited. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each from each one from his own master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed? Let me do it again. Verse 11. Shall I take all my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears? You kind of get the idea. He has a serious case of measles. And I give it to me and give it to men whom I do not know where they're from. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back and they came back and told all, told him, that's David, all these words. David said to his men, each man gird on his sword and every man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. About 400 men went to David and 200 stayed with the supplies. Wait a minute. David has just gathered 400 men to kill a farmer, a sheep herder. David took on Goliath by himself. They didn't even have a problem with any foe before him. But for the first time, David has gathered an army to fight. Now, he has gathered what he had before, if you remember, to save Keilah. And that was a bit rough because he actually saved the city from the Philistines. And then the city actually turned coat on him and actually betrayed him. But David here has gone off the Richter. He has done something we have not seen up to this point, And that is that David is now seeking revenge. What happened? David, if you remember in the last chapter, had the opportunity to kill the man who was seeking to kill him. Saul. And he didn't. When David rescued with his men the city of Kelah, and then they tried to turn him in, David clearly had the manpower, it seems, to have wiped out the entire city, but he didn't. So why this guy? What happened here that caused David to really blow it? Well, that's where we start this journey tonight. Go back to the first verse. Notice the first three words. This is where it starts. 1 Samuel 25.1 tells us, Then Samuel died. I'd love to be sensitive and yet honest with every one of you. I mean, you can be both. Encouraging and yet challenging. Every one of us are going to face tragedies. And for the most part, you don't get warning. We are not entitled to warnings for tragedies. I think God even does this. Jesus relates that to storms when the house is built on the rock. And I think there is no place other than perhaps the psychic hotline, something else, by the way, God actually calls an abomination. But what, that there's very few things that are as, that are as sort of uh, least that's the one I'm looking for. There is sort of as, as least probable as the forecast is for the weather here. 
And the reason I say that is even when a storm could come, it doesn't. Or when they don't see a storm comes, it does. And the reason I say that is even today in 2016, we still can't accurately tell you when a storm is coming with full confidence. Even today, with all of our technology, there are certainly times where they can tell you, well, it looks like this might be a major storm and it turns out to be a cute little rain. And this appears to be something that might be just kind of a little drencher and it turns out to be a a flood. And that's with all the technology we have that we can send into the sky. There are going to be times where you are going to be blindsided and David is blindsided. The question is, what do you do when you are? The easiest thing to do at that point is pull in all the mirrors and focus on yourself. And there's reason for it. You're hurting. You're in shock. But unfortunately, that often is a seed planted that bears forth the fruit of entitlement. And entitlement is never a positive thing in the kingdom of God. That mindset that I deserve, I should have. And that's where David's going to wind up here. Now I want to remind you, here's the weird thing. David was anointed by Samuel to be king. I mean, that was the first time that we have record, other than maybe when Samuel called everyone together. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel speaks to Saul and says, The Lord has taken the kingdom of Israel from you today and giving it to a torn, the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to a neighbor who is better than you. And, of course, Saul will then try to beg Samuel to come back and sort of they can kind of do this kind of corporate worship thing so he saves face. And he does. And then in verse 32 of 1 Samuel 15, it says, Bring Agag, the guy he had spared. God had said to wipe out completely the Amalekites, and he spares the king. Does anyone remember, by the way, what Samuel did, I'm sorry, what Saul did with King Agag after he had captured him? He actually goes to a specific place to get a specific thing done. Does anyone remember what that is? He gets a monument made. A statue of Saul's victory over King Agag. Now, this is a real common thing, by the way. There's a picture of a king standing on the neck of your enemy. So why not make it literal by getting the guy right there and chisel it out in stone right in front of you? Don't move. I'm going to keep stepping on your neck until they're done. It is Saul's complete self-exaltation. It's all about Saul. The most interesting interesting thing is, does anyone know where Saul had that done? Carmel. Now David's in Carmel. That's where the situation is. Nabal is from Carmel. Which means Nabal has some form of ranch or whatever the case is, sharing a sheep or whatever, sharing a sheep or whatever, in the place where there's a giant statue of Saul's victory over King Agag. Though he spares him as a result of it. On the other side of it, Samuel then has the guy, hacks him to pieces, and says to Saul, Saul, we're through. And Samuel never goes to see Saul again. And then David, 
is anointed in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 16, by Samuel. And to be honest, until recently, David's never saw him. He, he anoints him as king, and then he's gone. And David doesn't see him until he flees to him after Saul's trying to kill him. Now, I don't know about you, but some guy shows up, he anoints my head, I'm dripping, my brothers are all angry because they're all older, I'm the youngest of eight, and they all have been looked past, and they like, no, not you, not you, not you, not you, not you, oh, but hey, this little guy, this is the one. I mean, and they're, kind of, they're hating me for it, and then here I am, I'm covered in this stuff, and then I don't see Samuel again. And then all of a sudden, the Goliath situation comes out, and I step out, you know, you being the David, you step out, you take down Goliath, there's no Samuel in that. There's just a Saul, who, by the way, was a head and shoulders taller than everyone else but Goliath. And clearly, though he was his advantage, now his advantage means nothing in comparison to the opposition. And then David kind of shows up in that. And that's really it. Until David flees for his life because Saul's trying to kill him. And he flees in the first place David goes is to Ramah, where Samuel's from. And he's like, you could see him going, Samuel, what's up? So maybe the Lord puts a calling on your life. Well, clearly he does. And then all of a sudden, everything hits the fan. You know, you would think in a moment like this, things would go, oh, wow, God's really, he's laid a calling in my life. Everything should be nice now. No, it tells us in Scripture, whoever desires to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. It doesn't say even if you accomplish it. I mean, there'd be some comfort in knowing, hey, I must have accomplished it. I've got persecution now. But the moment you actually conclude, I'm going to serve the Lord, that conviction is going to be tested. It's like the moment you decide that you're going to be single if you're single. You know, you're like, I'm not going to date anyone. And all of a sudden, the person you always wanted to ask you out asks you out. Funny how that works. And then you have to test that conviction. If that's something you really heard from the Lord, or you just said, well, I'm sick of it. I'm just going to make it look like I don't want it. So the last time that David saw Samuel, he was fleeing to him. Saul finds out about it, and Saul sends three different groups, and they all go to, and they wind up instead you know, falling down and prophesying. I mean, they do everything but what Samuel, Saul sends uh, them to do, which is to go and capture David. So Saul's like, well, I'll do it myself. Saul goes before Samuel, strips himself bare, and then prophesies himself. And that's the last time that Saul saw Samuel. So the last time David saw Samuel was when Saul stripped himself bare in front of them both. Prophesied. That was it. And then there's Samuel. David's like, all right, I'm gone. This was the one guy that could constantly remind him of his calling. The one guy that could say, hey, the Lord anointed you. Don't forget that. I know things look opposite of that calling. I know that things don't look like what you think God's going to do in your life. But I want you to know, that's not the way it works. Be patient. And certainly one thing the Old Testament does for us is it reminds us to be patient. It also can be discouraging if you're a now kind of person. It's 25 years, it's 40 years, it's 120 years. When you start to realize God really isn't limited by our timetable. Because he really wants to save more people. So what would it be like for you if you were that David and then you realized that Samuel died? Would there be a part of you that thought, surely Samuel would be the one putting the crown on my head? Surely Samuel would be the one that everyone would say, hey, look it, didn't I say I made you king? Let's do this. Now he's blindsided. And when he's blindsided, please hear these three things. He loses perspective. He loses his sense of humor. And he takes it personally. And this is the way it works, you guys. At a moment like that, when you do get blindsided by some form of tragedy, let's be honest, this is the death of a mentor to David. 
do you lose perspective? Now, you know, what, you know what that means to lose perspective. What that means in the simplest sense is things that should be little look big and things that should be big look little. You lose perspective and all of a sudden God looks small and problems look big. Someone makes a comment that normally would pass right by you, but now you really take offense to it. Or if you take it up a notch from there, they don't say something you, should, you think they should. And then you really get offended by that. It's one thing when someone says something, and let's face it, anyone can text anyone and you could think that it was bad. How are you? I know how they're saying that. How are you? I know what they're thinking. He's like, you can't read tone in a text. And we know how that is. We lose our sense of humor because we lose perspective. And when we lose perspective, things cling to us that should never cling to us. How big of a rock needs to find its way to your shoe before it really hurts your walk? And a little rock can really seem like a really big thing if it winds up in the wrong part in your foot. A sliver can make a tremendous amount of discomfort. It's the little thing. I've had slivers that have bothered me more than broken bones. It's amazing how a little thing in the wrong place at the right time can really, or at the wrong time, might I say, can really make a difference. Samuel anointed David king, but then he died before he ever saw him becoming the, taking the throne. And David now, well, he's not actually left without the voice of God. And don't miss this. I remind you, of the 400 people that have joined David, now 600, one of them is Abiathar, the priest from Nob, who, who came with the ephod. And they've been with him since 2222. So God, listen, has prepared a person to step in knowing that Samuel was going to leave the scene. And David will even after this call and say, bring the ephod, let's go inquire of the Lord. He didn't need Samuel for that. So what we have by verse 2 is David is raw. He's raw. He is vulnerable. Have you ever been there? Have you been there lately? What do you do when you are vulnerable? Do you surround yourself with people who won't let you do something stupid? Do you just crawl off into the cave by yourself? Do you do something stupid? Blame it on the circumstance and think it's okay? I want to remind you, David has influence now over 600 men. And I don't know how many people you think you have influence over, but as I look out across this room... I see a tremendous amount of people represented in your faces. And you may not think it, but you do something really stupid, it will affect infinitely more people than you think it will. One of the guys who comes to our afternoon study on Tuesday says, I never want you to think this is for naught. He says, I give my notes to a pastor in Zambia who oversees a whole bunch of other pastors in Zambia. Basically, he goes, the country of Zambia is being affected by a Bible study we are having here. And he says, they're passing around the notes and preaching them. And I just think there's a kind of a weird thought that there's a whole country that I've never met that we get to actually have a Bible study and somewhere in heaven, I think someone will be like, oh, brother, I know who you are. You know, how strange is that? You just don't know. And David is now vulnerable. 
So this is what we read in verse 2. Let's meet our other two characters. We haven't even met the sort of hero in this story. The hero isn't David here, and certainly the hero is not Nabal. Now, there was a man from Ma'on. Ma'on just means habitation, a place to live. It's eight miles south of Hebron. And he was in the business. Remember, he's, it says, whose business was in Carmel, the place with the statue where Saul says, in the simplest sense, it's a statue that says, I'm all that. I'm the man. Which I think is appropriate that David's going to have this problem there. And the man was very rich. So the man, just like Saul in that sense, was like, I'm all that. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. It's a time of feasting. We'll read that throughout Scripture. Now, the man's name, by the way we read, is Naval. And Naval means fool. Now, who names their child fool? I don't know. But you remember, a boy, is you give him eight days because you circumcise him on the eighth day. That's eight days to get to know your child before you name him. For eight days, he has no name. And then you've had eight days, and by this point, you might be like, sir, poops a lot. I mean, what you could name him. But understand, there are different words for fool. There's a word that speaks about being, in the simplest sense, brainless. There's another word that speaks about actually having foolish choices. Different words. And there's another word about a person that is morally corrupt. And it starts with this. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's God's estimation of a fool. They are ungodly and unteachable. And that's exactly what this guy is. It tells us, by the way, he has a wife and her name. And here's our other character in the story is Abba Gail. You're probably familiar with the word Abba. Abba means. Right. It means father. But it's not just father. Abba is daddy. Dada. It is the word of great intimacy between a father and a child. Gail means my joy. In the simplest sense, we might say, my father's joy. That's how this plays out. So you've got fool who married my father's joy. And I want to remind you, most gals didn't have much say in the matter. Dads talked between them, thought it was a good deal. If Naval, by the way, was somebody that was, came from a wealthy family, likely so with as much livestock as he has, chances are there was a deal made, and they made the deal, and they just found the cutest girl they could they thought would make pretty babies, and definitely that's what we read about Abigail, and so she didn't really have much of a say in it. But here's the beauty for you girls here, and that is that you can't, you don't have to, you'll never have to marry, a, you'll never have to marry a fool. That's your choice. No guns being pointed to your head, and no one's making the deal for you. Might I suggest, never marry a fool. Here it tells us, though, about him. We'll find out that he's basically identified by his character. She's identified, too, by the person she is. It tells us here, she was a woman of good understanding. Literally, sechel. Sechel, by the way, means to be prudent or insightful or wise. I think very much of my wife when I hear that. And a beautiful appearance. also think of my wife. I can't not say that. I also think of her there. And the word, by the way, yefe. Like yefi means beautiful, and the term ta'ar and ta'ar means form. So in other words, you just, you know, she was, first of all, from a distance, she was just, you just wanted to look at her because she was beautiful. But then as you got to talk to her, you realized she was just the deal on the inside out. And there's one thing we usually in our household, we have the terms pretty and beautiful, and they're very different terms. A pretty person is somebody that may be physically gifted. 
they have something about them that may be attractive. And we, and we have, my wife and I often talk about that. We don't have a problem with it because neither of us are intimidated by the fact we could say that person's attractive. We're not attracted to them like we want to run off and have babies with them. You can look and see they have nice eyes or whatever. We don't, we don't gauge body parts because neither of us are body kind of people. Uh, but we do like faces. I like honesty. We, you know, we could say, well, that person seems, they're, they're, but there's some, that's not beautiful. We've modeled with people that were clearly physically pretty, that were the ugliest people we ever met. But to be beautiful was something from the inside. And what God says is, from man's perspective, she was, she was beautiful. But from my perspective, that looks at the inside, she was beautiful there too. She was beautiful on both counts. On his side, though, it says, but the man was harsh. Churlish is the King James on that. He was harsh and evil in his doings. Well, that seems like a terrible marriage, doesn't it? And he was from the household of Caleb. Caleb, by the way, I remind you, was from the tribe of Judah, like David is. Numbers 13.6 makes that clear. Caleb was one of the 12 spies that went in originally, one of the two that actually said we should take the ground. So here's what we have first. So we meet our two characters. What we have is we have a gal that's beautiful to look at, and she's a really great gal to talk to. Uh, on the other side of it, this is a guy you don't want to go near. He's just a guy that in the simplest sense is really rough, impossible to talk to. He's very gruff, and he's just the kind of person that when he walks in the room, he fills the room with himself. And no matter what the case is, you're, kind of get, you're going to get shoved to the wall one way or the other when you talk to him. That's where it starts this. And it says, David was in the wilderness. And, and the whole point of this in verses 4 through 8 is that David saw these guys. I remind you, David was a band of, he's, he's basically, he's got a, bench, a, a band of raiders with him. And, and they either have the opportunity to just basically go and hold everyone up. They're basically a gang. Or they could try to do something nice. And imagine somebody going, we're the gang that does nice stuff. Can you imagine that in London? You know, there's like, well, there's the shops and we're like the nice group. You know, what we do is we help old ladies across the street and we, hey, we tell people when they leave their phones on the bus. You know, we're always making sure that people don't leave their umbrellas. I mean, imagine that kind of thing. Well, that's David's like, well, he's got his gang and he realizes at this point he's trying to do something nice with it. Now, up to this point, what it seems is, is the guy had all of these sheep. And he had, all of the, he had all this livestock. And so what David said is, you know, this guy could really use some help. Now, it's important because where they are is just north of the Negev Desert. And remember, David's a shepherd, too. So I kind of get the idea he's got a feeling but he, on this. But he also knows that the Philistines are there, the Amalekites are there, the Moabites are there, the Edomites can come in, you know, the Midianites can come in. There's a whole group of people that could come in that basically would come in and raid you. And David knows that. And he's like, hey, you know what, why don't I help you guys out? So let me just do this. We will surround you guys. I mean, we've got 600 guys. That should help. We're going to surround your, you and your livestock so that if anyone really tries anything, it's our job. We're kind of the commandos. We know how to handle the situation, which, by the way, is a really cool thing, except for this. Up to this point, David's never asked for anything for it. Please hear me. The moment a tragedy hits you and you start focusing on yourself, selfishness starts infecting everything. And when selfishness starts infecting everything, then entitlement is the baby born from that. Now David looks and he's like, you know what? This guy owes us. I mean, you know, hey, look, we watched after the guy. We watched after his sheep. Now it's time where he's going to be feeding people anyways. And if he's going to feed any people anyways, surely he's going to give us some. Now, understand 
it is a cultural courtesy, a common cultural courtesy to do such a thing. But it's not required, which means that often people would do something like this, but it wasn't required. And that makes it even more so. You feel more entitled when you know other people do this. So let's say you've got one of those kind of bosses. Hey, boss is giving everyone else the day off, but he's not going to give you the day off. Or, you know, the boss is going to, you know, other bosses pay overtime, but your boss just says work it because we need it. And, you're, and there's that part of you that would think on, on some days you can handle it, but some days you get clobbered by something that you don't see coming. And on that day, you actually fantasize murdering your boss. And then what's even worse is you probably even fantasize several different ways of murdering him. And I remind you, though man looks at the outer appearance, so you won't do any time for it, the Lord looks at the heart. And what he sees is, you've now become a serial killer and you've killed the same guy several times before the day is done. And you're like, who does that person think he is? Now, understand here, when David starts playing this thing out, and he starts playing the entitlement, the man's response was not just no. And that's kind of important to note. David sent the men, and it's kind of a keynote here, that he sends them in his name. That means they represent him, but not only do they represent him, that means that they, in essence, have his resources behind him as well. So they're like, hey, so this is the deal. It's no big trial, no big thing. And they go and they ask him, hey, you know, in lieu of David coming, he sent us, and we would just, here's the deal. What do you think? And notice he doesn't say, could you? He's like, whatever you find to your hand is good. There's an expectation he's going to give something. He could have given like a sheep ear. And that could have been it. Or a hoof. Suck the marrow up, boys. But you kind of get the idea. is like, hey, whatever you give us is going to be cool. David's expecting something. Nabal answers, and I remind you, his name is Fool. And he said, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? The fact that he says the son of Jesse tells me he knows who he is. You know, there are many servants or slaves nowadays who break away each from his own master. Oh, I've heard the story about this guy. In the simplest sense, what he's saying is, who does this guy think he is to try to get something from me? Now, please understand, David's own son will write about this in the book of Proverbs. And let me give you a few verses about fools in the book of Proverbs. First of all, in Psalm 49.10 it says that the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. I think David saw that. Proverbs 10.8 and 10.10 says a prating fool will fall. Proverbs 10.18 says a fool spreads slander. Proverbs 12.15 says a fool is right in his own eyes. He always thinks he's right. Now, we can look at this and think, yeah, I know people like that. But can anyone actually say, I know people like that and think of you? Proverbs 13.16 says a fool lays open his folly. In other words, he doesn't even try to hide it. He doesn't care. He doesn't lay it out. Here it is. Who cares? It tells us in Proverbs 14.3 that in the mouth of a fool is the rod of pride. You know what that means? He's so proud, he's going to smack you in the face with what he says because he's so proud. That's what a rod of pride is. Proverbs 14.16 says a fool rages and is self-confident. Do you see all of these in this story so far with Nabal? 
Proverbs 18.2 says he has no delight in understanding, but only in expressing his own heart. Do you know that kind of people that they have no, though they have two ears and one mouth, you'd think they had four mouths and no ears? It tells us in Proverbs 19.10 that luxury is not fitting for a fool. And here's one, by the way, dear Disney. Proverbs 28.26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Follow your heart? Not according to Proverbs. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool vents all their feelings. You know, I remember when my wife and I were first married, that was where we were. Like, we just want to share all of our feelings until we got to Proverbs. And, we, you know, it's like there's 31 Proverbs, so we just tried to read the proverb of the day, whatever the date was. We just read that proverb. And then you get to this one, and you're like, okay, it's the 29th. And it's like it says, you know, a fool vents all their feelings, but a wise man restrains them. And you're like, oh, well, here I was trying to, oh, I just want you to know all of my feelings. And you know, I'm like, well, let's not be fools. Verse 11 says, back to Nabal, who, by the way, I think is embodying all of these things. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men? I don't even know who they are. Why would I give it to strangers? What have, in the simplest sense, what have they done for me? Though they've already said, we've kept, look at, here's the thing. They've kept his stuff safe. They've kept his people safe. But somehow in that, they have no relationship with Nabal. So he's like, I have no purpose. There's, there's no way. I'm going to give anything like this. Who do you think I am? Who do you think you are to ask? Verse 12 says, so David's men turned on their heels and went back. Now, please understand, that's a literal idiom. The idea is simple. If you turn on your heels, you pivot so that your back turns to the person. And that is an act of disrespect. In other words, I know I've been dissed. So I'm just turning around and I'm walking away and I'm shaming you by actually showing you my back to do so. You know, that would be kind of like us just dropping the mic, going, I've said what I need to say. And now David hears this. They go back and they tell him. And David says, let's go kill someone. David didn't kill Saul. Now, imagine how confusing that would be for the guys who wanted to kill Saul. You're like, that guy wanted to kill you. And you didn't kill him. Kyla all betrayed you so you could be killed. You didn't kill any of them. Now a guy makes fun of you. And you're going to kill every man in his family? Imagine him going, all right, guys, you ready for a battle? Yeah, who's with the Philistines? No. Are we finally going to take down Saul? No. Who are we going to kill? A farmer. Farmer? Why a farmer? Because he made fun of me. You'd think, now, in light of the other things, does that seem strangely petty? But let's be honest. Have you ever taken offense to something honestly really petty like that? I mean, if we can get out of the situation and we look, we realize, how can I actually react so much to this dumb thing? It's just dumb. It's not worth me freaking over. David says, gird on your swords. He's got 600 men, 200 of them will stay back. We'll see, by the way, that's a precursor to 1 Samuel 30, where 200 will stay back at the brook. And he's like, all right, we're going to go kill someone. And now let's meet the hero. Ladies, the hero in the story is a woman. And might I suggest to you, oh, she's more than a woman, more than a woman to me. That was for you. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, the father's joy, the Baal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. The word, by the way, for it is, the word is eat. Eat means to shriek 
swoop down upon. The best answer I can give is, how many of you can do any decent eagle imitation in here? Yeah. Bruno can? There's a Christian artist, and I remember he said, he's just like this. He's like, I just wrote this song. I was actually out in the wilderness, and I was communing with God, and we were praying, and, you know, we were just having this great time, and an eagle came down, and it just was such a sweet moment. And, you know, and so I just, um, I wrote this song called The Song of the Eagle about the moment. He starts playing this quiet thing, and then he goes, ah! You know, he just like makes this crazy noise. It's like a screechy, horrible noise. <coughs> you know, and in it, that like, that was the sound of an eagle. An eagle is a really loud, obnoxious sound. And the reason I say that's the word that's used here. They're like, hey, David came to greet our boss, and the boss just went, ah! you know, on him or whatever the case. The men, by the way, were very good to us. We were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both night and day. All the time we were with them, with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, no one consider what you will do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is such a scoundrel that no one can talk to him. <laughs> you ever know anyone like that? Have we ever been that person? He's like the scoundrel term, son of Belial. He's like, he's such a son of the devil. You know, he's just, the guy won't even listen. Now, at a moment like that, Abigail could just freak out. Abigail could leave her man. Wouldn't that be the easiest thing, you'd think? Now, maybe not culturally, but when he's going to kill all the men anyways, it doesn't matter. They're all going to be dead anyways. She could have just killed him. That jerk. That's it. He's done. Go to sleep tonight, darling. (laughs) Abigail made haste and she took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seas of roasted grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Now, if you're familiar with the story, is there any part of you that wonders, where in the world did this girl get all that? You ever think that is like, does she just, oh, yeah, I had this lying around the kitchen, five dead sheep that I had already prepared. Well, in a moment, what we're going to see is Nabal had a giant feast. And apparently he had such a giant feast that she could skim this off the top and he wouldn't even notice. Now, I don't know about you, but has anyone ever seen a leg of lamb? A leg of lamb can be a pretty substantial thing. Well, now multiply that by four because... Lambs traditionally have four of them, unless they're near Chernobyl or they're born without one. Uh, And then you add the rest of the sheep, and you take that and then multiply that by five. You tend to think you would notice that much meat being gone. Or for the matter, 200 loaves of bread. Or two skins of wine. Or, you know, I mean, you start looking at there's 100 clusters of raisins. This guy must have had quite a feast. She grabs all of these things and she loads them on donkeys and she said to her servants, notice they're her servants as well, go on before me, I am coming after you. So that means that David and his men are going to get the gifts before they see her. Does that make sense? The kindness will be given first. Gifts and blessings will be sent before, before they meet her. It tells us, by the way, she didn't tell her husband the ball, verse 19. That means she did all of this. By the way, she did this to save him. Are you aware of that? What's clear is he was going to kill all the men. So who actually wasn't in danger? 
she wasn't in danger. She wasn't a man. She did this to save a fool. Isn't that a crazy thought? So she didn't want to tell him. She went to save him without him even knowing it. Before he would know. Verse 20. So it was that she rode on a donkey and she went down under the cover of the hill. And that's where David and his men were coming down toward her and she met them. Stop. What did she ride on to him? A donkey. And a donkey, of course, when you ride on that, the idea of that's presenting peace. Where was the deal made? At the hill. Do you realize how Christ-like this woman is? She went and saved the life of a fool who was harsh and very deserving of wrath and was ignorant of the coming wrath that was coming at him. She intervened. And she intervened by first laying presence before she even came. Blessings came that they would stumble upon on donkeys before she came. And she came riding on a donkey and closed the deal at a hill. But it gets even more profound than that. It tells us, by the way, in James 3.18, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. David now is having his moment. Remember how uh, we've had Saul have his moment. He's got, I'm all that statue. And then you've got the Carmelite here that we see in the bell, and he's all that. Who does David think he is? Now David's got his moment where he's got the measles. And it says, David now said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow was in the, has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David. If I, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Did you notice again? Who David's talking about. Now, the enemies of David, interestingly enough, wouldn't that be Saul that he could have killed in the last chapter? But now David realized, now it's all not about about the enemies of God anymore. It's about the enemies of David. And by the way, the moment you start focusing on who you think are your enemies, you've really bought the plot. When Abigail saw David, verse 23, she hastened to dismount from the donkey fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. Did you get that? This girl intervenes for a fool by saying, Could you take all of his sins and put them on me, please? What a hero this woman is. This woman does exactly what Jesus has done for us. What an amazing story. Now, in that, and by the way, of course, reality, this is, this is history here in the front of us. Now, I want to do this for a moment. As I read from verse 24 to verse 31, I'm going to give you three challenges. So let's say table one, count how many times I say, my Lord. Table two, how many times you hear the term maidservant? Table three, count how many times you read the Lord? 
My Lord, maidservant, the Lord. Are you ready? Listen to this. You get the theme here. Starting in verse 24. On me, my Lord, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears. And hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let the enemies of those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now his present, which your maidservant has brought, this present, which he has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. She's the one who didn't do anything wrong, but she's asking for forgiveness. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. And evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living. But the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. Do you think she's referring to anything? David looks back at that. And imagine behind him is Goliath. She's like, your enemies are going to be sling out like a rock out of that sling. And imagine that was like, by the way, David's greatest public victory, wasn't it? And up to this point, this is David's greatest public defeat. It says, verse 30, And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel. She knows that he's the proper king. That this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with you, dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Okay, how many times did you hear the term my Lord? Fourteen times, exactly. How many times did you hear the term the Lord? Seven times, excellent. How many times did you hear the term maidservant? Six times. Now that's quite concerning, wouldn't you say? Considerable, considering we're looking at verses 24 to 31. I'm your servant, your servant, your servant, your servant, your servant, your servant. There's maidservant. He goes, look it. My Lord. My Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord. I submit myself to the king. But I want you to take the iniquity of this fool. By the way, did you notice? She doesn't try to cover up for him. She doesn't say, well, you don't understand he came from a bad childhood or a weird neighborhood or he had affluenza. Have you ever heard that term yet? That's a term that they used in America for a kid that went nuts and did some really stupid things. I think he tried to rape a girl. He actually did. And they tried to, his defense was that he had affluenza. What that means is the poor kid was rich and therefore he really didn't know right from wrong. I mean, think of all the things, but here's the point. Abigail never once tries to disqualify who the guy is. He's perfectly guilty. He's perfectly the jerk that he... I mean, you know, what's clear is his name is full and he does a really good job living up to his name. 
So I'm not just saying, well, this guy's really decent. If you just got to know him, you'd realize how great he is. She's like, he really is the jerk that everyone says, that his name says. You should see it coming. But still, even in light of all of that, would you please still take all of his sin and put it on me? And then once you've put it on me, at this hill, will you grant forgiveness? This is the story of Jesus in the garden before he goes to the cross. He speaks to the Father and says, I surrender to your will, not mine. Take all of this and put it on me. That's exactly what it tells us in Isaiah. And hear me on this. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. And the word iniquity is an easy word to remember if you're from America because the word is avon, avon, like Stratford-upon. So Stratford-upon iniquity. Uh, actually, there's probably some truth behind that. So it starts with this. We are separated because of those iniquities. But in Isaiah 53.11, it says, and we're going backwards in regards to text, it says then, he shall bear their iniquities. The servant, my servant, God says, will justify many. In Isaiah 53.5, it says, he was bruised for our iniquities. And why? Because in Isaiah 53.6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's the point. This girl, imagine girls, ladies, men too. We're going to go up to heaven when they stand before God. And somewhere down the line, I pray you would be able to say, Abigail, you were one of the clearest examples of Jesus in the Old Testament I can find. Thank you for that. Imagine what would happen if Abigail went and David didn't receive her offer. What do you think would happen? She would have gotten killed. She gave up her whole life to save the life of a fool. Well, if that be the case, well, where do I fit into the story? Man, I'd love it to be Abigail, but it's not. I'd love it to be David, but it's not. David just lost his temper and he has to get right. I'm the ball. I'm the guy that looked at the proper king and said, you know what? Who does he think he is? That he would really take the king. Who does he think he is? But praise God that Jesus has stepped in my stead and at the hill closed the deal and said, you know what? Lay all of that on me at this hill. Well, with that in mind, David says to Abigail in verse 32, Blessed is the Lord, God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is the advice, and blessed are you. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me from hurting you, unless you had hastened to come and meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. David received from her hand what she said, which tells us that the offering was received that she offered. Then he said, go up in peace to your house. See, I've heeded your voice and respected your person. The offering was accepted and the result was peace. Verse 36. But not everybody accepted the goodness of that sacrifice. What's clear is there's another person in this story. And when we go out to share Jesus, will they be somebody who receives God's offer and therefore gets his peace? Or will we be the fool that says no? Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore, she didn't tell him anything. The last thing you want to do is drop that kind of bomb on a drunk guy. She told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. 
So it was in the morning when he had a terrible hangover. Well, we read it as when the wine had gone from Nabal. That his wife told him these things, that his heart died with him and he became like a stone. It came about after ten days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. The fool, on the other hand, reacts differently to this gift. First of all, notice what happens because of this gift. His heart dies. As a result of that, he becomes like a stone. I started looking in the scripture about this whole ten days thing. And you know what I found that was interesting? was the last time it's mentioned. God speaks to the church, by the way, of Smyrna. He says, don't fear any of those who are about to suffer, any of the things you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil's about to throw some of you in prison. You will be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. But be faithful until death. And I'll give you a crown of life. Now, why didn't God just smite him from the, mo- from the beginning? Do you realize, I mean, it appears what it looks like is he's in a coma. Is where we can kind of get something like that. God gave him 10 days to change. You know what's really weird? The very thing people hate God for often is the most merciful thing he does to someone. Somebody walks around and hates God their whole life, and then they get incurable bowel cancer. And somebody looks and says, if God were real, he would heal my grandpa of his bowel cancer. And they watch grandpa be this big, burlish guy, I mean, when I think of this particular character, I kind of think of Michael Caine or uh, George C. Scott playing Scrooge, you know, where it's like even their face is Scroogey and they crumble it all up into something that looks like a crumbled up piece of paper. And the way they talk in there, what? You know, and it's, I mean, I kind of get that out of this guy originally. And then I realize you start seeing characters (laughs) like this. And, uh, and then somebody like that that's big and burlish then starts eroding into some tiny little thing that now is fragile. They've never been fragile in their life. They've been able to pick up a fridge and throw it through a car. But now all of a sudden it's hard for them to open the fridge to get something in it. You know, I mean, it's amazing. And now they're like, and it's like they, they're, you know, someone watches them and they kind of go, man, that's like, look at how mean God is. He's like, he's getting weaker by the day and he's getting weaker by the moment. And, you know, look at him. He used to be so strong, but his strength made him rich in his own mind. So he said, who is this God anyways? And he was so strong and he was so I don't need anyone. And God says, yes, you do. And he says, I don't need anyone. And now there he is on his deathbed. And his deathbed's covered in feces because he can't even do anything about it. And there he is. He's a miserable mess. And someone says, if there was a real God out there, he'd heal my grandpa. And you can see God saying, look it. If I healed him, he would never know he needed me. But for every moment that he gets worse, he has to ask himself, what am I going to do about this death thing? We've watched people with terminal cancer. My, my mother's, my mother's, my wife's grandfather, so my wife's mother's father, 94 years old, on his deathbed, received Jesus right there. Farmer from Wyoming, never were considered till the day that he died. Well, till two days before he died when he said yes to Jesus. Was cancer a great thing for him? Absolutely. No, cancer in and of itself wasn't great. But God knew that's what it was going to take. 
If that guy had just basically lived really healthy to 104 and they got hit by a train so everything was quick or he went in his sleep, he would have died and gone to hell. Which one of those was more merciful in the sight of eternity? Well, then inevitably you get the question, right? Well, what about the Christian? The Christian that obviously already knows God, why do they need it? They could just, why don't they just go in their sleep, get hit by a bus, you know, whatever. Why don't they, you know, why do they have to erode like that? Because I think every one of us has prayed at one point or another, God, do whatever you need to do to save, and then you insert your name there, whatever name you want to put there. My mom, my dad, save their marriage. My daughter, my son, my brother, my friend. If I got terminal cancer, and every day it got worse on me, but that was what it took to save my children, that they would really cry out to God, and that was it. Because what they really needed to see was that God was strong enough to carry me through it. I would pray, God, don't heal me. Save my kids. Because it's more important to me. And if I have to give up everything for that, it's worth it. Now, by God's grace, I have a wife that I know loves Jesus. By God's grace, I know that. But when a Christian says, well, why would God give me this? Because everything he does is to save someone and bring them closer to Jesus. Here's the sad part. What if that were to happen to you or to me? Would I spend all my time instead yelling at God and being angry? In other words, the very thing that God could use to save someone and I'm blowing it. You know why I would? Because I get a David complex. Or I just get full of me. And I feel like I'm entitled to a nicer life than that. Is that really what we want? Is to die comfortable and then live as paupers in heaven? And the reason I say that is, is this guy doesn't seem to be very pleased with the fact that she's done this thing, which, by the way, saved his life. But then God gives him ten days. Who knows what goes on in those ten days between him and God? Would it be weird one day to actually see him in heaven? And then go, wow, huh? Didn't expect to see you here. Oh, well, those ten days were rough, but I finally said, you know, I need to leave this fool thing behind. So let's close this thing up. What happened in the end of it all was David didn't have to kill him. God would do that for him. Verse 39, so when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. David says, look at, I really could have done something stupid here, but God didn't let me. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of the Baal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take him as his wife. Now, ladies, I just want to show you, for those of you who watch all of those YouTube videos about these like unbelievable proposals, skydiving written in the sand, and then the waves form, will you marry me? Let me just show you how David does it, the greatest king until Jesus. It says, when the servants of David had come to Abigail to Carmel, and they spoke to her, said, David sent us to you to ask if you want to become his wife. There you go. Put that on a YouTube thing. There's life goals right there. There's a marriage life hack for you. And by the way, she doesn't go, hmm, let me think about it. I don't know. I really missed the fool. She arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, here is your maidservant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Even after all of these great things that she's done, she's still a great servant. Washing feet. And I can't help but think of my Jesus. Even washing the feet of Jesus, Iscariot. 
Abigail rose in, in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidservants or maidens. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. The next two verses, by the way, verses. The next two verses we'll actually kind of use as we pertain to the next chapter. But I do want to say this. In the end of this story, the woman who had this horrible situation, married to this horribly wicked, rotten person, who's basically name means jerk, you know, uh, in the end of it all, she thinks, man, God, deliver me from this jerk. And, you know, it's like, and imagine what would happen when she hears that there's a group of guys that are going to come and kill the jerk. She could see her going, yeah, man, this is cool. I'm going to go on. I'm going to go visit my sister, honey. You know, I'll come back when everyone's dead, you know. And she doesn't. Instead, she still goes to intervene because somewhere in all of it, there's a greater, because God says this. This was a woman of exceptional wisdom. And exceptional wisdom shows us that the wisdom of God is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, David, ultimately, by the way, he's going to marry her. She's called the Carmelitess, perfectly because she's from Carmel here. And it's interesting. I remind you, this is the place where Saul still has a statue that says, I'm all that. This guy who says, I'm all that. Now he was all that. Now he's, now he's not at all. Now he's warm child. And, and, but in that, David, the one who God actually, God was the one who said, you're all that, has actually stepped away finally and said, God, I need to give you space. Now hear me. You may not all, we may not all face Goliaths. And we may not all have Sauls that want us dead. But we're all going to have Nabals. Every one of us is going to have guys like this in our life. Guys that, to be honest, and the worst part is, they continue to knit at us and get at us and do these things that, dis, that to just chip at, they can't chip at our integrity, but they could really chip into our flesh pretty easily. And they just get us there. They're like slivers. They're like cacti that walk and want a hug. And we're like, oh, God, really? The, you know, the kind of times where you're like, oh, the be- oh they're, they're gone for a month. What a great month this is going to be. And you realize God often ordains those Nabals because he wants them to give their life to him too. The question is, will we be more the David in the story or will we be more the Abigail? And maybe someone really has gone after you and done something really stupid and just really tried to make you look like a miserable worm. Is it your job to get revenge? Because if you really think you want to do something, you may win the battle, but you may never win the soul that way. But if you step back and let God take the space, vengeance is his, by the way. He knows how to do what he needs to do in the situation. And people can be really nasty, there's no doubt. And even Christians can be really nasty. All they have to do is get in the flesh. Every one of us are just really, really gloriously saved jerks. You want to go back to the old person? Pick up the old jerk. It's not going to be good. We all have a Nabal in waiting. Let's be honest. It's just who we were. As we go to prayer, beloved, I'm going to ask, what if we laid those Nabals down tonight and said, God, I really... And by the way, if we were going to be really good about it, we would say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for what I've chosen entitlement and somehow I've taken personally and lost perspective on really what I should never have done that. What was I thinking? God, I've treated this in the flesh. And it takes nothing but a person in the flesh to make me in the flesh. But I need to take the high road. God, make me more the Abigail and less the David in this situation.
Because I remind you, it's Abigail that looks like Jesus in the situation, not David. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful chapter. I thank you so much for the richness, Lord, of your word here. And Lord, no doubt there are Nabals in all of our lives. People, Lord, who, in the simplest sense, carry around that attitude. They tout that attitude. Who do you think you are? And the reason they say that is because they think they're all that. And to respond in like manner makes us act like we're, we think we're all that. But truth be told, God, you are all that, not us. So tonight, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for where we have taken offense, lost our sense of humor and perspective, taken things personally, Lord, that may have been intended personally, but you would never want us to. But rather, Lord, forgive us for where we've crawled in the flesh to fight the flesh of someone else. And from this point on, Lord, may your Holy Spirit so overcome us that we would not be overcome by evil, but that we would overcome evil with good. Jesus, thank you for being the ultimate example of this, where we as the jerk rightly deserve wrath, but you intervened, came in peace, and cleared my debt, our debt, at the hill Golgotha, the hill of the skull, where our debts were paid because upon you our iniquity was laid. And clearly that sacrifice was acceptable and the result was peace. So Jesus, as our Savior and as our Lord, we want to say thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for paying that price. And tonight, may we walk out of here clean. Lord, for whatever things will blindside us, or we're even right now still in shock of the things that have blindsided us, I pray, Lord, tonight, please, Make it better now. We recognize, Lord, the problem isn't Samuel's death. The problem isn't even the ball. We can't control those things. The problem is what we do with them. And we lay them before your feet now. And say, Lord, make us better. May we be then our Father's joy. Like Abigail's name speaks. In Jesus' name. Amen.